This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 197, Silicon Avatar. Hey-ho, neighboritos. Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion, and you know the score. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart a single episode of Star Trek, mining it for the morals, meanings, and messages, and to ask ourselves whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week... Silicon Avatar, a notable title for two reasons. First, it is the episode of Next Gen wherein we re-encounter the crystalline entity. Uh, Silicon Avatar, though, also notable because it's the name of my Missing Persons cover band. Oh, this guy, I love Missing Persons. Yeah, and the band, fingers crossed, should be big, as big as a cover band gets. We're at the rickshaw stop this uh, Friday night, by the way, at 9. I know Mm, you're saying, wait, when was this recorded? Don't worry about it. Any Friday night at (laughs) 9, the rickshaw stop. (laughs) Silicon Avatar, as for me by name. Ken, before we move into the show, we get the privilege of talking about our sponsor again. That is the Star Trek Starships Collection. And uh, I mentioned last week how the, the thing that really excites me about these models is that CBS is an active participant in this. It's not just the fact that they are a licensed product, but everybody who has been behind the shows actively participates in how these models are made to make sure that they are as accurate as can possibly be. I'm actually, as we record this, I'm sitting here looking at my little collection of starships and I'm, I'm blown away. I can actually, the, the sunlight is coming in through the warp nacelles of the Enterprise 1701 refit. And it's just super cool. You know, and I actually can see that through the NX-01, too. You know what's so weird to me is mm-hmm. I normally just sit here and stare at them, but I actually picked up one of the ships when you started talking. Uh-huh. And the one I picked up was the 1701 refit, and I'm holding it up to my lamp. And yeah, same thing. It's really yeah. cool because you, you say, well, there's no way they can light these up. And you're right because, sure. I, mean, I mean, they're impressive, but they're also about four inches maybe. Mm-hmm. And if you were talking about, you know, lighting and electronics, you'd be talking about a much more expensive thing that probably wouldn't look quite as realistic, right? Right, right. But, you know, use what you got. Yeah. <laughs> so, you <laughs> exactly. know, the, the, the nacelles, are ma- nacelles, excuse me, are made of something translucent. And so, well, parts of them are anyway. And so what looks like, you know, would be lighting up, it's got light passing right through it. it um, they're, they're just nifty, nifty little things. Yeah, and actually, and the same thing on the NX-01 as I look at that. It's got the little uh, transparent part. Oh, I, I just knocked one over. <laughs> I did the same thing a minute ago. I was sure you had picked it up. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, keep that in there. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I'm looking at the paint job on this, and just everything is so perfectly scaled, perfectly detailed. You can see the little uh, turrets where the, the face cannons are. It's just so cool. I'm, I'm constantly blown away by how good they are for something to be that small and very inexpensive. The thing that's cool to me is that once you subscribe to this collection, not one of them, but two show up every month. <laughs> so you know, twice the opportunity to be surprised and delighted by this collection. And what's better, the longer you stay in the collection, the more bonus gifts you get. Everything from like dedication plaques, and those are really sweet looking. I don't know if you look those up or not. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they are really, really cool. And then variations on other ships. So like the Borg Cube versus the Borg Sphere. The longer you're in the collection, the more of those exclusives you get. And they don't charge you anything more for those exclusives. So um, I, I absolutely am a huge fan of this collection. I, I, I'm not just here to talk about it to uh, our listeners. I am a fan and a collector. Um, each model is cast, like I said before, on, uh, on another one of our ads, that it's in this uh, sort of a, a metallic resin. So it's got a good heft to it. It's got mm-hmm. a good feel to it. They, they have a nice weight. And uh, it comes with the display base, and it comes with that collector's magazine that I know that you love because you get so much more background information about each ship. Yeah, that is really cool. Although I will tell you, honestly, the coolest thing, because mm-hmm. we've been doing these ads, like, I want to say three or four weeks now. Mm-hmm. And at first, we're like, boy, do we love these. Mm-hmm. And that's great, because we do. What's, right. what's been really cool, though, is is getting feedback from people who have signed up now and who really yes. love them, too. That's been the best thing. I've, I've seen one negative thing, and it was that actually something broke in the mail. I feel certain that it was replaced, mm-hmm. so I'm not even mm-hmm. worried about that. Mm-hmm. But that's like the one negative thing was like, oh, something bad happened that actually had nothing to do with the ship itself, nor the production, nor the quality. <laughs> right, people, right. I mean, people right. really are digging these quite a bit. And that's my favorite part. I got another show that I do, too. And, you know, I love having sponsors. I love having advertisers. But my favorites are the ones when people then write to me and mm-hmm. say, wow, you're right. This is awesome. So, yeah. so it's not just us saying it. It's a bunch of other people who have signed up, too. And then, of course, I mean, they let you get in really easily. Your first ship, the 1701D, which I think might be in an episode or two of Next Gen. I can't remember, mm. but uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. You get that one. Uh, you start off for $4 and 95 cents and that includes shipping. So, I mean, it really couldn't be an easier thing to start to check out the quality. And, uh, and you know, if you're not hooked, you can cancel. And the worst thing that happens is you have an end, uh, a one seven Oh one D and, and who, oh, that's who, the who worst doesn't thing. want that? Exactly. <laughs> right. That's the worst thing that happens to you this week. You're sitting pretty. Exactly. And like I said, two more come directly to your door every month. You can cancel your subscription at any time. But honestly, why would you? Yeah, they keep coming out with cool models. Um, They are amazing. And you can get so much more detail, all the information that we've been talking about at the sponsor website, st starshipscom slash mission log. Make sure you use that address because, you know, you want to let them know that you heard about it on Mission Log. And uh, we're fans and we want to make you fans of the official Star Trek Starships collection as well. That uh, website again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And I mentioned people are actually writing to us, you know, getting in touch with us, letting us know what they thought. Uh, If you want to tell us what you think of the ships yourself or if there's anything else about which you would like to get in touch with us, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we'd love that. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and other places to leave comments, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, everything is just as it should be as we warp into trivia. Eh. <laughs> it's pretty good. That's all pretty right. Good. You know, we'll no, try I like something. It. I like it. It's better so than t- half impulsing into trivia. 
It is. Yeah, nobody wants that. Nobody yeah. wants that kind of trivia. So today's show, Silicon Avatar. The teleplay was written by Jerry Taylor. Now, she and actually most everybody on the writing staff did not want to do a sequel. And honestly, nobody was that excited about the idea of using the crystalline entity again. But she really liked the idea of a Moby Dick style story and went with it. Now, the story is actually by Lawrence V. Conley. It turns out he took a bus from Oregon to be able to pitch the story. He was a freelancer, just another one of those guys who was able to get in a story with that open submission policy. This is his only professional screen credit. Today's show is directed by Cliff Bowl, who we've mentioned many times before. And hey, what about the title, Silicon Avatar? Neither the words crystal nor entity are in that. The Silicon Avatar is actually data taking the place of Dr. Mars' son. Jerry Taylor liked the definition of Avatar as being, quote, a god in human form or as more precisely a repository of knowledge. So that's how we arrive at that title. Now, a couple little details here. Uh, Malona, as in the uh, the location of the colony, Malona 4, it is actually a delicious melon-flavored frozen treat made in Korea. Yeah. Haven't had one myself, but if we have any listeners in uh, Seoul, please send us some. We have a reference to the Brechtian cluster. So if you love German theater and the concept of alienation, then you should go there. And uh, Data is playing a piece on the guitar by 19th century Spanish guitarist Francisco Tarrega. We have a location here. We do have exterior locations that were filmed at the Golden Oak Ranch near Santa Clarita, California. Disney bought that 900-acre ranch in 1959. You've seen many other productions use it. Back to the Future, Mad Men, of course, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. Spin and Marty. Spin and Marty, there you go. Now, uh, it, it is interesting because this is very, very newsworthy. It is right next door to the Sable Ranch, another Hollywood location ranch. Uh, very famous, has been used in a lot of films and TV shows. And it actually burned two days ago. Uh, we've had some pretty intense wildfires in Southern California. Golden Oak is okay as of this recording, but there was a lot of concern that it would be the next to go. Um we normally try to not be timely about this, but since you just named something that was very of the moment, should we, yes. should we do the date? Sure. It is the 25th, <laughs> 25th of July, uh, 2016. I almost said 19, because, yes. you know, but no, 2016. 2016. So, yes. yeah, you you are now pinned to this moment in history as far as what's yes. going on in uh in L.A. or around yeah, it, L.A., I suppose. Exactly. It, it has been in the news. It is newsworthy. And we'll, we'll see how long it continues to be in the news. Hopefully not for long, not not for that reason. Um, we'd have some recycling in this episode. The matte painting of the destroyed Malona 4 uh, was also used in The Survivors, as were a few of the costumes from that same episode. Hmm. The entity itself, as we mentioned in Data Lore, was computer-generated the first time around, and not a sufficient resolution to use in the HD remastering. So it was completely rebuilt for the remastering project. We talked a little more about that in Data Lore. Now, we have two guest stars that we need to talk about. We have Susan Diol or Dial as Cameron Davila. Susan is from the Midwest. She got her start on soap operas and then as a regular on the very short-lived TV series Hot House, after The Next Generation, she had guest roles in a number of high-profile shows, Murphy Brown, Wings, Seinfeld, Quantum Leap, and she will be back for more track with two guest roles on Voyager. Uh, 
Then we have Ellen Gear as Dr. Kila Marr. Ellen comes from a family of actors, and in fact, she has been working most of her adult life as an actor. She played one of Jimmy Stewart's kids on The Jimmy Stewart Show in the early 70s. In a little different style, uh, around that same time, she was also one of Harold's arranged dates in Harold and Maud. Um, if you remember the scene where he commits Harikari, that oh, was is that, her. Was that yes. her? I was trying That's to remember. Her. I knew she was not the one that was there when he caught himself on fire. No. <laughs> no, but I couldn't remember which one she was. Okay. So you say that, and I laugh. And for people who um, who, who have never seen that movie, you don't understand why I think that's incredibly funny. But uh, uh, Harold and Bot is a great, great movie. Please go see it. Um, since then, she has appeared in a huge number of TV shows. Uh, she actually has played four different characters on five episodes of Chips. She was a recurring character on Falcon Crest, Beauty and the Beast, and more recently, she shows up on Desperate Housewives, Medium, The Mentalist, and more. Now, she heads the Theatrical Botanicum in Topanga Canyon, California. That's the position that she took over after her father passed away in the late 70s. I wish I had known that. I was actually out there a couple of years ago to see a show. And um, yes, we have to admit there is kind of a bad edit to a shot of her holding her tricorder upside down. And all the Star Trek fans took a collective gasp when they saw that. No big deal, though. I'll just uh, assume that she can read it in both directions. This episode starts quick, then slows considerably, then picks up again, then slows down some more, then it sort of coasts, then it picks up again, then it slows down, then picks up again. Prologue. On the surface of Malona 4, Riker is learning about the new settlements that will be built on this gorgeous green planet by one of its colonists, Carmen Davila. His mind is turning to making green memories of his own. Riker proposes dinner, and Carmen is quick to accept. On the menu, chicken curry and wine. But before we can actually learn what will be for dessert, a rumbling noise comes from the sky, followed by the appearance of a fearsome enemy we haven't seen since season one. The crystalline entity. Everybody out of the pool. Act one. It's a scene of chaos as the crystalline entity destroys wide swaths of everything on the planet. Trees, grass, and it's trying for the people. Sadly, Carmen and the old man she stopped to help were killed. With the rest of the colonists moved into a cave for cover, Riker and Data use their phasers to seal off the entrance by blasting rocks. The metals in the cave rock might be enough to deflect the entity, for now anyway, surmises Data. Dr. Crusher says everyone else is okay, despite a few minor injuries. The phasers are used again to light up a few rocks overhead, and now the colonists sit and wait. Riker's not sure about the air supply, and air supply is all out of love, but it'll have to do until the Enterprise gets there to rescue them all. Lucky for everyone, the Enterprise was able to pick up the weird disturbances going on at Malona 4 from quite a long distance and is now warping there. As the air gets thinner and the sweat starts pouring, a landing party headed by Worf arrives in time to rescue those trapped in the cave. Outside the cave, total desolation. The crystalline entity has wiped out everything in sight. Act 2. With the intention to pursue the entity, the Enterprise crew is joined by Dr. Keela Marr, a xenologist who has spent a long time studying the entity. She beams aboard, greeted by Commander Riker, and she's excited about meeting the survivors in a kind of creepy, almost too excited way, like 
she needs to tone it down a little. First thing first, she needs to attend a briefing with the captain. There, we learn what we've already seen. The Theodity used every living thing, even down to the bacteria on the planet, to create energy for itself. The metallic elements in the cave wall may have saved the colonists, and Dr. Mar is giddy at the prospect of interviewing the survivors after she sees the destruction for herself. Picard insists that Data go along with her landing party. He knows more about this than just about anybody. After all, he's from Omicron Theta. His brother knew the entity. Oh. Okay, yeah, there, there might be some reservations, but she should really take Data. Back in the cave with a landing party... Data is doing what he does, pleasantly reporting on science things. Dr. Mara is completely and conspicuously ignoring him. She even tells him so. And she really lets him know what's on her mind. Because Data's brother, Lore, was in contact with the crystalline entity on Omicron Theta, she suspects Data may be the reason the entity came back and spared the people on Malona 4. One other thing. It's personal. Dr. Mara's 16-year-old son died on Omicron Theta because of the entity. That's why she's obsessed with it. And that is why if she finds out Data had anything to do with this, she will go full Bruce Maddox on his android body. Act 3. Jordi LaForge, Data, and Dr. Mara convene in engineering to science the science with the readings taken from Malona 4. They're comparing soil samples, looking at nitrates. Guys, there is so much science going on right now. Then data suggests they look at gamma radiation, which might reveal traces of antiprotons, which Dr. Marr totally dismisses. But Jordy says, wait, data can science the science better than any scientist can science. You really should give it a shot. And what do you know? They do, and it does. There's a pattern of antiprotons left behind by the entity when it wrecks stuff, and then again when it travels. Should be easier to track now. Dr. Marr kind of reluctantly thanks Data, but he informs her that his inspiration came from the logs of a scientist who lived on the doomed colony of Omicron Theta. Those notes hadn't been published, but if Dr. Marr really had been paying attention when we were watching Data lore, she'd know that Data was programmed with the knowledge and experiences of many of those colonists. On the bridge, the two report their findings to Picard. The good news being that they can track the entity in space. The bad news being that Dr. Mars seems hell-bent on killing the entity with photon torpedoes. Picard is all for being cautious and using defensive measures if needed. But it's time he explained to her what the opening monologue of every show is all about. Seeking out new life, not hunting it down and killing it. Seriously, Picard wants to try to communicate with the entity as long as it's safe to do so and use weapons only as a last resort. It may simply be a creature trying to sustain itself. He asked Dr. Marr to work with Data to explore the possibility of communication. In his quarters, Data is playing guitar when he's visited by an agitated Dr. Marr. She actually apologizes to him for her earlier behavior. They get to work on one of Data's theories about how to communicate with the entity, but soon enough... The conversation takes a slightly different direction. Dr. Marr asks about the Omicron Theta colonists and exactly how much of their thoughts and memories Data carries with him. She wants to know if he's carrying around anything from her son, Raymond. He is. He has access to his journals. And she wants to know what Raymond thought of her, if he blamed her for leaving him on Omicron Theta. She was busy, focused on her career, and Data reassures her that Raymond's journals reveal that he was indeed proud of his mother's career. Before he can say more, 
Riker calls for both to report to the bridge. It's a distress call from a ship called Calisco. They're being pursued by the crystalline entity and can't get away. As Picard talks to the captain of that ship, Data and Dr. Marr overhear their cries for help. It's a transport ship, not fast and not equipped with powerful enough weapons. A few seconds later, the crew are screaming as they're under attack, and then nothing. Picard orders the Enterprise course change to intercept the Calisco. Act 4. The Calisco is an empty shell. No living thing is left on board, not even a seed. It will be left behind with a notice sent to Starfleet. Meanwhile, the Enterprise will press on to find the crystalline entity. In the turbo lift, Dr. Marr confides in Data. The screams of the crew of the Calisco made her think of her own son. She's racked with questions. Did he cry out for her? Did he wonder where she was? The entity is still on course with the Brechtian Cluster, an area with two inhabited planets. On a side note, Picard informs Riker that Carmen's belongings will be returned to her parents should he wish to enclose a note. Riker agrees, and he also takes this moment to inform Picard that he thinks, just maybe, the entity should be destroyed. It has already killed thousands. What a stopping to communicate is unsuccessful, and they are responsible for even more deaths. Back in his quarters, Data and Dr. Marr work more on a possible communication standard by which they can contact the crystalline entity. While working, Dr. Marr asks more questions about what memories of her son Data has in his positronic brain. He knows details like how Raymond, Rennie to his friends, liked to play Parisi squares and how he also had a girlfriend, something Dr. Marr didn't even know. Then she asks something of Data that's a little strange. She wants to know if he can speak to her and Rennie's voice. And Data obliges by reading a letter that Rennie wrote in Rennie's voice. It's a day-to-day thing, talking about exams, going on an archaeological dig, his friends, and then how he misses his mom. It brings Dr. Marr to tears. Act 5. On the bridge, Data and Dr. Marr are in position while the Enterprise heads toward where the entity should be. To drag it out of hiding, they're using a graviton pulse, hoping to get its attention. And so they do. Here comes the crystalline entity right toward the ship, and Picard orders shields raised. The entity stops, perhaps sizing up the strange emissions from the Enterprise. Since it seems to be working, Dr. Marr and Data keep increasing the frequency of the graviton emissions. Then the entity responds in kind, essentially communicating with the pulses. This breakthrough might mean that the Enterprise crew can actually understand something of the entity. Dr. Marr changes tactics, returns to the computer, and enters some new commands. This time for a continuous graviton beam, the entity stops its transmissions as if it doesn't like the new output. Picard orders Dr. Marr to stop the continuous beam and return to the pulses, but she's now doing her impression of Dr. Marr ignoring Data in Act 2. As the tension builds, she gently touches Data's arm and says, I did it for you, Rennie. The beam continues. When Dr. Marr initiated it, she locked access to the computer, and it can't be stopped. In a moment, the entity shatters. Dr. Marr is escorted back to her quarters by Data, under confinement order from Picard. She holds his hand on the way, and once inside, she tells Data that as long as he's alive, then Rennie is alive. She tries to explain, confusing Data for Rennie, that she did it for him that he might have peace at last through her actions. Data corrects her. There's nothing in his knowledge of Rennie that he would want his mother to kill the entity. He was proud of her career as a scientist. The contradiction of what she did means to Data that Rennie would now be very sad. The End
shades of uh, Kivas Fajo there. Oh, that, that very cold ending, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like Data having a girlfriend. Like, oh, uh, so we're done? I'll delete the program. Bye. Yeah, exactly. I don't even remember you. Yeah. Don't even remember. I do a great teenage boy imitation, though, if you want to hear it sometime. <laughs> oh, too soon? Really? Yeah, right. I got to say, Omicron uh, Theta was a really hopping place, right? Mm-hmm. Doctor was working on a new detection system there, the unnamed scientist. They actually named him in the show, but I noticed neither you nor I bothered to remember. No, no. Uh, no. Noonien Sung, of course, uh, was building androids all over the place there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rennie mm-hmm. Mars falling in love, getting really good at breezy squares. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, this previously unseen entity just comes and, like, wipes the whole place out. It must be like some yep. kind of nexus or something. Like a oh, weird... that's an interesting choice of words. Yeah. What? A nexus? Nexus, Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Well, I mean, a weirdness magnet would be another good term for it if you mm-hmm. want. Just, oh, I like wow, that. that's yeah. a hopping place right there. This is everything good happens here. Oh, and one incredibly bad thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's really unfortunate. But I guess, you know, that's kind of the neat thing about building this as a sequel mm-hmm. that we've gotten to add so much more meaning to what the crystalline entity is doing. Yeah. You know, we already have this backstory about what happened to Omicron Theta. And then we open on this very idyllic scene, you know, this beautiful landscape and all these, you know, young, good looking people about to build a colony and they're so full of hope. And then sand trap, <laughs> then it just is just turned into a massive sand trap. Yeah. Really, yeah, really unfortunate. But but good thing for Starfleet in the future. I am really pleased to see that chicken curry survives into the future. That is good. Although sadly, so do MREs. Well, they might be great MREs in 300 years. I don't know. Riker's like, Ugh, really? We haven't gotten you a replicator yet? The idea of having to suffer through that uh, for yeah. what promises to be an amazing dessert, apparently. Yeah, I, I, wish well, they had, I really I wish, wish they I knew had what said that what was. that was. Yeah, exactly. It was I like really wish I knew. Turkish delight, maybe? Is that what they're going to have? Or, uh, could be. Lady fingers? Um, oh, <laughs> could be. <laughs> could be. That actually seems possible. It does, yeah. Um, but hey, once again, I'm really intrigued by the idea of colonies everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it always leaves me with these questions. Like, how many people are actually left on Earth? Mm-hmm. And what are their motivations to leave? Yeah, you know, it's sort of this uh, this escape to the suburbs. Just people are are desperate to get out. (laughs) You know. Oh my goodness, are you saying racism is what's driving people off of Earth? No, 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 no. Because I'm under the impression that that's part of the reason that we have the suburbs. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just saying, big big planets, not many people. Yeah, that's true. I think actually colonists are just the TNG answer to miners and TOS. Mm-hmm. Remember how oh, yeah, every planet be, we yeah. went to, there were miners, and we still get miners from time to time on uh, mm-hmm. on next gen. But mm-hmm. really, uh, colonists now are what we go for instead of miners these days. It seems. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more poetic that way. I think. Um, now we we learned a new thing about the phasers. They have uh, a kill setting, a blow up the rock setting, a stun setting, and also a turn rocks into a light source. Uh, meanwhile, the temperature in the cave just exceeded nine thousand <laughs> degrees. <laughs> They did that. That's true. I can't remember. Did they actually do this? So remember when Sulu was caught on that planet with the dog in the unicorn costume? I do remember that. It was in the enemy within, and he used the phasers to heat up the rock. He did do that. Yeah. Okay. I thought he did, and yet, and yet, still, they nearly died. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they totally did. But but you cut back to the cave, and just everybody is sweating like crazy. And they're like, you could have used less phaser on the rock. Yeah. You know. 
or, or just follow the, the odd glowing blue light that's at the other end of the cave. <laughs> yeah. That might have been helpful. It's a TV thing, I know. I really love, you know, when we get to go back and watch an episode several times and we get to pay attention to different things in the scenes. Mm-hmm. So watching Dr. Marr in the briefing room in Act 2 her body language every time data speaks right i I sort of not that i didn't notice it the first time around but the second time around i thought okay now every time i watch dr marr in any scene i'm just watching her reactions to the people around her and it's great because deanna is watching her Mm -hmm. and that makes for a great bit of detail you see deanna sizing up those reactions that Dr. Mara is having to data. And it's terrific. It's a great little bit that um, it kind of indicates where she's coming from, kind of indicates what's happening. Yeah. Go back and watch it again. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I see exactly what's going on here. What I will say, though, is it brought up something else. And I know I've been saying this a lot lately, and I'm really hoping I get to stop saying it relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Mara leaves. And Deanna says, well, you don't need an empath to know what's on her mind. And I'm thinking good thing, too, because once again, in this episode, we don't have one. Yeah, right. Because how did she not know that Dr. Marr was going to, like, blow up the entity? Yeah. All she does is stand there and go, oh, something's wrong. Really? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know who's figured. Even Worf has figured out at that point that something is right. wrong. Right. And I'm not saying that Worf is dumb. I'm just saying he's not always the quickest to pick up, you know, on the subtleties. Data at that point had picked up that something was wrong. Oh, sure. Yeah. And yeah. then the empath yeah, is like, like, hey, wait, everybody. I think something's wrong. Oh, yeah. Right. Nice I, job, I Kreskin. Think, yeah. I think just for a second here, there's somebody full of hate and revenge. <laughs> let, let me look around. Let me look around. Okay. Yeah, it could be her. I'm that just, one. Not I'm the thinking, android. Right. She has a uh, a good line in the cave. She says, I'm accusing you of collaborating with that monster. And then Data says, and I'm attempting to explain to you it is impossible. Now, I wanted that conversation to keep going. Because I wondered, was he actually going to get there? Because all he said so far is that he is programmed differently from lore. Mm-hmm. That's it. He just said, like, yeah, that was lore, and uh, we're built differently. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'm explaining to you that it's impossible. I haven't heard impossible yet. I've heard different. <laughs> I've heard that you're different from lore. But, right. but of all the androids that we know in Star Trek, you're two of them. Right, exactly. Like I said, like a week ago or two weeks ago, 50% of the androids are homicidal. Right. They're psychopathic. I mean, and so, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the other thing about it, right, is um, remember the time that they said, oh, and by the way, Data's going to be the judge because Data can't lie. Right. Except the following week, Picard ordered Data to lie, and he's like, yes, sir, no problem. (laughs) So, I mean, even if he does convince her, I would still think there'd be part of her going, yeah, but he could just be saying that. Yeah. Because that really is true. Ultimately, he could just be saying that. Mm-hmm. And you'd be saying like, hey, let me tell you about the time that I lied about firing a phaser at a guy who tried to kidnap me. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> and didn't feel a thing about it. Nope. Nope. Not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a question, actually. Um, there's a discussion between uh, Riker and Picard that we're going to hit in the next uh, next segment. Mm-hmm. But just, just for the mechanics of that segment, Riker mm-hmm. wants to say something more to the captain, mm-hmm. but he's not sure that he wants to. Right. And so he walks right up to the door and the door doesn't open. And that's how Picard knows that Riker has something to say. How did the door know? Oh, see again, the door <laughs> knows intention. I'm telling you, the computer, the ship's computer is keeping yeah. up with everything that's going on. Oh, man, that's creepy. It's, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. Either that or it's just speed. 
See, it's funny. You you fixated on the door. Mm -hmm. I fixated on Riker standing behind the chair and kept thinking, man, I hope he straddles it. Man, I hope he just just goes right over this chair to sit down. I kept thinking this is another Riker sit moment. Not that kind of conversation. Not that kind of conversation. Riker's not coming in Riker. He's not full Riker here. No, no, he's not. No. He's not. He's not Mister Swagger on this one. He he's no. going to say something to the captain. That he's pretty sure. Uh, captain's not going to you know like mostly because he's already heard the captain say uh, no <laughs> when that was mentioned before. <laughs> and props by the way, right. it wasn't Worf who said it, so that's good. Um, yes, we learned something about the crystalline entity that I don't think we knew to this point. Mm-hmm. Basically, sucked the life out of the Calisco ship, right? Yep. And uh, you know, like eating the cream. And a Twinkie, but leaving the cake. And, of course, you do have to put cream and cake in quotes when we're talking mm-hmm. about a Twinkie. But how did that happen exactly? Yeah, it's interesting because we, we kind of see it just destroy everything in its path. But right. to do that, it's almost like a transporter thing. Right. I mean, because like, yeah. so we, we should have come back out then to dirt and rocks and the table that Carmen was working on. When they came mm-hmm. out of the cave, right? If that's going to happen, mm-hmm. unless it's the difference between feeding and a feeding frenzy. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, well, I guess, yeah, actually think about it that way. If you're eating crab, when you come back, there is a shell there. Right. <laughs> but, but when you're yeah, eating soft shell crab, it's like, oh, there's destroyed. no point. I'll just eat the whole thing. Well, that's yeah. true. Yes. The shell is usually destroyed, but I mean, you, you have to be careful to go in and get the meat. That's yeah. my point, which maybe you have to do on a, on a spaceship as well. Whereas on a planet, yeah. you're just like, oh, man, look at it all. <laughs> just like if you actually accidentally end up eating a car or a table. Well, yeah, it's okay because mostly it was meat. Yeah. All I can think of now is I really want a Twinkie. <laughs> really? We, we mentioned crab. Now. We mentioned crab and Twinkie. And what you want is a Twinkie. Well, I didn't say I wouldn't take both. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. 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 All right. I do have quite the appetite. Um, <laughs> Something else that bothers me here, when Dr. Mara says about Raymond, said, I left him with his friends. I kept meaning to go back. And in my head, the voice that was yelling was saying he was 16 years old. No, we don't know when she left him. Hey, yeah, he could have been 11. Well, he could have been 15. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's 15. It's not just like going to summer camp. Here, I'm going to put you on a different planet. Al, it's like boarding school in a way, right? On a different planet. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay. I mean, yeah, she's got enough to beat herself up about. I'm not going to beat her up about that. No, I, I, I mean, here's the thing. She, she was racked with guilt about that. And understandably, because she didn't get to say goodbye to him and he died in a tragic accident. I get that. I get right, that. Right. But just today, uh, there was a conversation happening on our website, kind of going back to this conversation we've had before about all the orphans and Starfleet, mm-hmm. how how family structure is just completely different. Here's here's Jeremy Astor basically living on his own mm-hmm. after his parents are gone. And, um, y- you know, Wesley essentially being raised by the crew of the Enterprise right. um, and then off to Starfleet Academy. Um, and somebody made the point, well, maybe in the future this is sort of saying that everybody is responsible for everybody. You know, trying to put a sort of a silver lining on this. Sure. That it does take a village and their suspect to uh, to raise everybody. And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting argument. I really wonder what the upsides, what the downsides are of doing that, how those structures exist. And then I just kept thinking, 
16 year old kid on another planet. <laughs> you know, I kept coming back to that. But but hey, but I'm, I'm glad for him. He gets to play pretty easy squares. He seems to be loving that. Shout out to a game that uh, has already been mentioned in Trek before and it will get mentioned again. So I like that little bit of consistency there. And um, oh, there was a thing that I noticed that uh, that I'm sure you noticed, too. I hope you noticed it. There is this look when data Mm-hmm. says uh, to Dr. Marr, he says that Rennie enjoyed his girlfriend's, quote, kindness, her gentleness, her physical attributes. Now, she's not looking at him when he says that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the words come out of his mouth, that robot gets embarrassed. <laughs> and he looks at her like, oops, I should not have said that. I didn't get it. You didn't get it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I Seriously? Was to, no, I was trying to decide if I should get you to explain it. <laughs> yes, of course I got it. I did. It's like, I wonder if I could get him to say what, hmm. But then I remembered, and we have one of those shows where people who get it, get it, and people who don't are a little too young to get it right now. Yeah, go back to our episode of Menage Troy. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, and then one last question that I had for you. How would Dr. Marr know mm-hmm. that data can sound like other people? Does he just go around doing his Picard impression everywhere all the time? I'm guessing it's a party trick. Mm. This was an episode full of twists and turns, not unlike the crystalline entity itself. Very beginning of the show, we maybe learn, well, no, we learned something about Riker. What did we learn? Well, I'm not sure. Carries around a bottle of wine. I think we, well, right. And how does she know that? Unless you have to include a manifest every time you beam down to a colony. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. How does she happen to know that he brought a bottle of wine? Or does she just know him that well? And these are the questions, right? So Riker's mm-hmm. down there and he's like, hey, baby. Except, you know, not in the usual Riker way, because apparently there is a history between these people, right? Yeah. And so he's, you know, all... So why do you want to colonize anyway? And she's like, yeah, you know, you're adventurous. adventurous. And he's like, well, I thought you pioneers were adventurous. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, it's all about finding the right place to put down roots. And Riker's like, oh, put down roots. Tell me more about that over dinner. <laughs> and I'm, okay, I'm, I'm like, okay, does Riker now see his in? Or is Riker actually thinking, eh, I could live the rest of my life with her? I mean, is, yeah. is, is, is she Miss Wright or is she Miss Wright now? And he's saying whatever needs to be said uh, to to um, get to dessert. Mm, mm. Still talking about lady fingers, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe so. Um, yeah, I, that's wow. That is a really good question. I, I, I kind of started my note taking with that scene, as you did too. Clearly. How could you not? It's like I right know, at right? the very beginning, right, and right it's like beginning. wow. Either Riker is telling us something completely different about his character, or this is more about Riker's character than I want to know. Yeah. Well, well, there's something that I keep having to ask myself every Mm. time we get a glimpse into Riker's personal life like Mm -hmm. this. I I mean, we have to ask, well, is this a sort of a product of the reality of TV production? You have different writers coming in to do different shows. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got... Really, from week to week, at least in Star Trek The Next Generation, this sort of 
question of, well, are we doing things that continue long arcs or are we not? Are we going back to this idea of purely episodic or are we doing things that build long, long character stories, long arcs? So there's a, a little bit of, um, I, I don't know, a little bit of ambiguity when it comes to that. And then I have to ask myself, well, are there messages here that are implicit that maybe we're picking up on totally accidentally from from an actual intended message by the writers or producers or or developers of Star Trek? I looked at this and the first thing I thought was, okay, are we trying to say something about sex in the 24th century again with, with Riker's quote-unquote relationship mm-hmm. with, with Carmen? Um, because we have seen him anywhere from you know, falling in love with a hologram yep. to his on again, off again with Deanna that he can just sort of pick up whenever he pleases or whenever she pleases like, Oh, Hey, we're alone for a few hours on this planet. Yeah. Why not? Um, right. You know, it, it's really strange. And then it seems to also not even be a problem or even a question that when he goes someplace and encounters another female that strikes his fancy, well, that's cool, too. Mm-hmm. So it, to me, there's one of two ways to look at it. Either Star Trek is actually trying to say something about the nature of relationships in the future, whether they be romantic or just purely sexual. Mm-hmm. Or this is just the reality of making a TV show. And some writers say, hmm, well, Riker is sort of the Kirk-like character. He's the young, brash kind of action guy of the series. So if we're going to have anything romantic happen, it'll happen with him. Yeah, except what happened here is different. Look, I got no problem. I mean, it's funny, but Mm -hmm. I've got no problem with Riker um, having dessert every episode. I'm sure. fine with that yeah. as long yeah, as yeah. the woman, you know, with whom or the or the other person, the other entity with whom he is uh, participating is, you know, is along for the ride. Mm-hmm. What actually mm-hmm. struck me on this one is, is he misleading Carmen? Is mm-hmm. he saying, hey, mm-hmm. I could be Mr. Forever, you know? Yeah, right. right. Or, I mean, now the other thing is, it, it seems that, I mean, she actually says, as you know, I make a wonderful dessert. So this is yeah. not their first time. Um communicating let's say having dinner no, let's no, say. No, yeah yeah and so maybe this is just what they do every time you know you yeah. fall into patterns with people i hear mm-hmm. <laughs> you fall into <laughs> patterns with people you know where you'll you'll talk about the things that maybe aren't going to be real things um forever but i mean they're the things that you talk about when you're when you're there i mean maybe this is the dynamic of their relationship she did not strike me as somebody who was going to be easily fooled by anything that he was saying i just found it interesting mm-hmm. that I wasn't even caught on the sex part, except for the part where Riker is saying things that no way Riker would say that he's he won't leave the Enterprise for his own command. He's certainly not (laughs) going to leave the Enterprise for a colony. Now, I do believe that he could leave the Enterprise for a woman. But, you know, we only we've only seen her for maybe three minutes. Yeah. Well, I I mean, he's he's hooking up with an ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Let's say with that. And and girlfriend, you can use the term as loosely as you want to. You know, I have no problem saying girlfriend. Honestly, this this is like Kirk dropping in on Carol Marcus three years later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like uh, David's born, but maybe he's away at camp. Or something like that. And Kirk's like, on no. Holocron Theta? That would yeah, be well, that'd be, yeah. Well, that'd be interesting, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Kirk's like, no, really, maybe I'll stay. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. No. I just I, I think what's interesting to me is that yeah, the, there is something that is a little out of step with Riker that you have to ask what are his motivations there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we know what's motivating him, but is that really a lie or is that just something that is different because this is Carmen and they have a different relationship? Yeah. But then I have no problem believing that even if those colonists had survived and even if they were fine and even if they had terrific dessert one night or multiple nights, right. when he goes back to the Enterprise and Deanna says, so how was your visit to the colony on Malona 4? He's like, it was great. And she says, you know, I bet it was great. Hope you had a good time. How is that, Carmen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, they're because not... there's just something so kind of matter of fact, acceptable about yeah. everything and matter of fact. And it's very interesting because even if it's not intended, there is this implicit thing there about sex in the 24th century. Maybe that's a whole other episode of Mission Log. It is. Um, well, it is a whole other episode yeah. of Mission Log. I will say, though, I cannot remember another character who was on screen for maybe four minutes mm-hmm. that I actually wanted to know so much more about. Yeah, I oh, actually want terrific. to know. Well, she's great, but I, I want to know yeah. about their relationship because yep. just that line of that line of talk between them mm-hmm. it just I mean, just opens up so many questions and possibilities about Riker's past and uh, and Riker's motivation and, and who this woman might have actually been to him. Right. One right. wonders if there's any fanfic or maybe a novel. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to talk about, I mentioned the conversation that we were going to talk about later. Yep. And, and, and now is later. Kind of crazy oh, how good. that works. Um, the crystalline entity. Mm-hmm. It, time to kill it, says Dr. Marr. Her position mm-hmm. is very understandable. Her son died, as did thousands of other people. Right. Uh, Riker's position is uh, it's probably time to kill the crystalline entity. Um, his girlfriend, maybe, <laughs> died, <laughs> right. as have thousands of other people. Uh, Picard's position is principled. Yeah. Where, I mean, I know where we're supposed to come down on that, and I don't think you'll surprise me with your answer, but where do you come down with, uh, among the three? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I have to come down on, on Picard's side, because he, here's the thing. That thing did kill thousands, yes, mm-hmm. We completely and utterly don't understand anything about it. And I think that Picard's analogy about sperm well eating cuttlefish was a great analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I even wondered if we would get to the point of doing sort of the, the, the scorpion and the frog parable. You know, you, you know that one, right? I can't Where help it's, it. It's in my nature. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I, I, the, there might have been something that we that we ended there. Maybe even if we had ended up being able to communicate with the crystalline entity, that would have been a whole other type of ending for the show. Maybe we would have been compelled to kill it um, if we knew that it would simply continue on, that it had no regard for the, the lives that it was taking. Maybe that would have been a new and different ethical dilemma for them to face. I think the problem with Dr. Marr and with Riker is that they are – it, even if it's 10%, they're coming from a place of revenge. Mm-hmm. And that's that 10% that you've got to get completely eradicated before you can look at this from a rational, reasonable point of view. Now, that ration and reason might eventually lead you to the place that you can kill it. But Picard is the one who has always said, when it comes to diplomacy, you try. And then if you fail, you try again and then you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what it would take to push Picard to say that he had no other choice but to kill it. Of course you um, do. Conspiracy. 
I was going to ask you if this actually changes oh, your feelings. Yeah. Okay, if this changes your yeah. feelings about conspiracy at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, in conspiracy, they find out that it's like big bugs taking over people's heads. And I'll grant you yeah, that yeah. is not something you want. But he and Riker look at each other, don't even say anything, turn around and shoot the deal. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's Remick's head debris all over the place. And no, nobody owes anybody any money for that. It's just a fun callback. <laughs> but right. I mean, does that, so right. does that change your feeling at all about how they acted in conspiracy? Because if memory serves, you were like, oh, no, they, had to, they absolutely had to kill him. Yeah, well, I, there didn't seem to be any opportunity to communicate with those things or even keep them away. That's true. You yeah. know, yeah. so the, the, there would have been maybe a different thing if you could say, OK, well, uh, we chalk up Remick as a loss. Right. But maybe we can get a, a big bell jar to keep one of those things under glass for a little while and figure out what it is. <laughs> like Beverly kept her bug girlfriend, uh, bug boyfriend. Well, girlfriend. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't remember. Hey, all of now. the above. Ken. In the all host. The right. Above. In the host. Yeah. The host. Like that. Yeah. 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 Um, because it, at least it, Picard had somewhat the luxury of time. Mm-hmm. To say we, it, we there's one thing we know where it is and we know we can defend ourselves from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Worf said that the shields would work. They knew that they could use sort of a modified uh, photon torpedo to destroy it if they had to. So all of these things are working in their favor. And uh, that's all Picard's doing is buying time. And hopefully in that time you come to a peaceful resolution. I don't think the little bugs and conspiracy were really maybe given a chance, but I, I don't think they were really in it for the possibility of communication. We, we don't know, but, but we're kind of pushed up against a wall at that point. Yeah. So if yeah. you had had a different answer for the conspiracy thing that I was going to ask you about Armus, but mm. you're not wrong. I still think it would have been better if, if Picard had killed Armus and then had been racked with guilt by it. Except, of course, it's more Gene Roddenberry to say, no, 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 don't kill him. Leave him there. Yeah, right. Amazing, right. by the way. I feel like I feel like a, a dork, and maybe this should be in the next segment, mm-hmm. or maybe I could say in every segment that I feel like a dork. I don't know. But well, um, we are doing a Star Trek podcast, Ken. So. That's, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, actually, I'll save this part to the next segment. I apologize. Okay. So, right, so stick it. around to find out one of the reasons I'm a dork. Okay, cool. I, I just want to say that I love that scene between Picard and Riker in the ready room. I, I think it, it really, it, it's one of those moments where you can call it bonk, bonk on the head, but they really sort of narrow down what the ethical, moral dilemma slash message is of the show. That just, in a few moments, it gives you the perfect sort of nugget to chew on with yeah. what's going on. And I like that it's preceded with the call back to what just happened to Carmen, because it does, you know, maybe I would feel differently, probably not, but maybe I'd feel slightly differently if we hadn't just been reminded of Carmen's death and that she actually meant something to Riker. That's driven home by essentially everybody on the ship knowing that she was Riker's girlfriend or Mm -hmm. ex-girlfriend or whatever the case may be on again, off again. And he feels compelled to write something to her family. Yeah. You know, we're really putting an emotional button on it before he gets into this. So um, I felt like through this episode, there was definitely a shade of the devil in the dark. Um, But this has a much different outcome. And it's sort of gripping to see that outcome play in the end. Um, I don't think that we in the audience are supposed to side for even one minute with killing the entity before trying to communicate with it. I'm glad that you led into this by asking that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tension on the bridge during that scene feels very genuine. I, I love all the reaction shots that they get from everybody 
during what, when they realize what's happening. Because uh, it's very quick, and you know, the, the crystalline entity isn't a thing with a face that we can see emotions in, but we feel it because of the cast reaction. I, I did wonder that, you know, like I said before, if they had been able to talk, would there have been a different outcome or would it have gone an even darker turn? And we decided that we just would have had to have killed it anyway. But yeah, that that's kind of where I was uh, led by the story is thinking that there's, there's a beauty to trying to do some kind of understanding and making the enemy not an enemy or, or even if it is an enemy, there's at least some attempt at understanding yeah. what's happening there. And Picard's the only guy who figured it out. At first. Well, you say Picard's the only guy who figured it out. I got to say big props, and maybe it's just because the writer didn't either know that much or care that much about Worf, but I love the fact that it is not Worf. It is, in fact, the kindly-seeming old woman on the <laughs> ship who's like, oh, we gotta, man, we got to kill this. We so have to kill this. Worf never once. And then the follow-up conversation is not between Worf and Picard, talking about the tactical reasons they should go ahead and kill it. It's Riker. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I, I love the fact that it was not Worf who said... Well, obviously, you're going to blow it up, right? <laughs> right. Because no, it turns out not. And uh, right. I really appreciate the fact that he was never the guy to say. I mean, he was the guy who was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and fix it so you can if you need to. But that he was never one to argue for it was kind of a neat thing. Although maybe well, it was it, just not, you know, Michael Dorn's week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, Picard has sort of the, the important line in all of this. Crystalline Entity has as much right to be here as we do. Mm-hmm. You know, again, sort of making sure that we understand the perspective of where we are in the universe. Um, So if you want to make that something that is a very narrow microcosm for us being here on this earth, or if you do want to take it literally our place in the universe, well, there are all kinds of other things out there that may in fact be dangerous, but they may unknowingly or unwittingly dangerous. This might just be a thing, and that thing needs to be understood so at the very least, even if that thing continues to be an enemy, we understand it better and know how to get out of the way. <laughs> you know, yeah. that might be the real value in it at some point. I like the uh, almost Kobayashi Maru faced by the people in the cave. Uh, Riker mm. says, if we go out there and that thing's still out there, we're dead. And Crusher says, if we stay in here, we're dead. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, luckily, yeah. We, had, we had a third party then come in and say, all right, coast is clear. You can come outside. But... Honestly, you could have done, you could do an interesting show just about that. Yeah, for real. Maybe there's something out there that could get us. We know we're going to die in here, but we're probably going to die out there. So which one are we going to do? There's nothing, there's not a huge amount of conversation around that, I don't think. I just found it really interesting, just just summed up in those two lines. Wow, you were really on the horns of a dilemma at that point. I wonder what they're going to, oh, somebody else, okay. (laughs) <laughs> right 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 yeah that could have taken a much darker turn as well yeah <laughs> well, i agree I'm, I'm not thinking they're going to start eating people or anything i mean not well, a darker no, I turn not. it just would have yeah. been more of an yeah. examination of the position they were in i thought the position yeah. they were in was worthy of examination but you know now you and i get to do that instead of them because you know warp showed up and started blasting things to get to people i have an answer for you okay send the robot send the robot the robot's already in there yeah, exactly. What so if you mean? need to go out and figure out if the coast is clear, send the robot. Well, but once he moves the rocks, if the thing's out there, because we've seen it can go straight into a spaceship without actually going into the spaceship. It's the pile mm-hmm. of rocks with the reflective uh, metal, whatever, that's keeping the entity from knowing that they're in there or getting to them, right? So if they if Data dislodges the thing, 
that's all the opening the crystalline entity would need. And I said it was going to be next segment before you found out why it was dork. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think data's fast. I, I think, you know, send them. Everybody go to the other end of the cave. We're going to send a robot and he'll check it out. He yeah. Sort of be the canary at that point. All right. You, t- you tie for dork. Okay. Very good. Um, I think um, one of the other things that's sort of interesting to me about this episode is that we have Star Trek again exploring an aspect of death uh, a little bit here. Not, maybe not as major, um, but, you know, when we talked about Tasha Yar's death and how easy it would be to just recreate her in the holodeck mm-hmm. or how Wesley sees his father in there, we talked about how that could really mess someone up to prevent uh, a really useful period of grieving. Um, Dr. Mar is still grieving. She is still so hurt, and rightfully so. And it's tragic that she can't reconcile the loss of her son and tries to hold on to that idea in data. And I, I don't mean that she should get over it. That's absolutely the wrong phrase to use. But but to accept and reconcile the reality of her situation, um, it, it really screws her up that she has this opportunity to pretend like her son is alive in this way. It's a very different thing from just picking up a picture or having a memory. I'm when, sorry. When, mm-hmm. Well, you say you say it screws her up. How? Um, I think that she she comes into the situation hurt. She mm-hmm. comes into the situation with a kind of professional detachment. But I don't think that she really loses her sense of what's going on until she has this idea that her son is, quote unquote, alive in data. I think that's something that sends her over the edge. Oh, really? Because I think I really I, do. I think this yeah. was her plan all along. Oh, I don't think so. Really? Yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, would she want to see the crystalline entity dead? Yes. Sure. Yeah. I don't doubt that. Okay. But I, I think that it's the exposure to the exposure to the, the pressure and the, the sense of what's going on with data that I think turns something in her head. See, I really do. I think we've got a lady or the tiger thing here. I think it's going to be up to you, and there's nothing that's mm-hmm. really going to indicate. I, I personally think she came on board. I think the reason that she's devoted herself for however many years it's been now to tracking this thing and finding this thing is to kill it. I think she's wanted revenge from you know day one because she feels bad about how she's treated her son, or 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 you know feels bad that she wasn't there with him or for him, or that she left him in a place where he ended up dying. Mm-hmm. Oh she, no, she's and, like and Liam Neeson in yeah. this thing. <laughs> in a Taken movie, not like in Schindler's List, in like a Taken yeah. movie or something like that. No, I, I don't doubt that all of those emotions are there. I don't doubt that all of that stuff is what's there, sort of, you know, eating away at her. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that maybe under different circumstances, that impulse maybe would have been a little more controlled or controllable. Um, it, you know, it, it's only that she has data there in the first place to help figure out how to communicate with the entity that that happens at all. It would be a very different thing if all they had was a set of shields and a photon torpedo. And the captain is the only one who can say fire photon torpedoes. Unless we picture a whole different story with this, you know, nice old woman scientist running down the torpedo tube, knocking out everybody in her way to push the fire button (laughs) to make that thing go. Um, Maybe, maybe that that's a different story. Um, 
but I, seeing this play out, seeing her reaction to data, I actually I thought about psychics. I thought about the tragedy of people who lose someone and then go to a total stranger to try to come to grips with their sense of loss. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, that is one of the most horrible things that, uh, that a human being can do to another human being. Now, Data isn't bilking anyone out of money. He's not lying about what he's doing. He, he says very specifically, this is a mechanical thing. I have access to a journal. I know what his voice sounds like. I can recreate that, you know, given those very limited parameters. For Dr. Amar, though, she has to get hit with that cold reality of her situation in the end to sort of snap her out of it. And I don't know if she's truly snapped out of it. Um, it. It was doubly tragic when they get into the turbo lift to see her holding his hand. Mm-hmm. And then when they get back down into the room and she grabs his hand again and, and she is treating him motherly for for lack of a better word. She really sees Rennie in data. And that is so completely misguided that it, it's painful, you know, yeah. and, and th- that's where I mean that she's, um, you know, she's she's lost it in that respect. But, but I thought that this is a very human reaction. It was a very human thing to inappropriately put that on someone else. And unfortunately, there are people in the world who see that as an opportunity to take advantage of others. Um, but in this, it, it's really just a mistake, you know? Yeah. No, I don't disagree. Um, I find it weird, actually, the transference or the what's a, a projection that we do in death, like mm-hmm. when, when other people die. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, lately, rest in peace has been bothering me a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why mm-hmm. that is, but I think it's mostly because uh, I live on Twitter. I don't tweet nearly as much as I as I as I read. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm I, I check Twitter more times a day than is healthy. I feel fairly certain. Right. And anytime somebody dies, especially it was it was um, it was when Nancy Reagan died relatively recently as we record this, not yesterday, but not 10 years ago. Sure. And there were all these people who who put rest in peace. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go on a limb and say that Nancy Reagan lived in peace. Mm -hmm. But but the Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, that I don't know, she says that she hopes that Rennie could be at peace at the end of this. And she's not looking for peace for Rennie. She's looking for peace for herself. She's looking for something that's going to make her feel good about the way she acted or didn't act uh, with her son the whole time. Yeah, right? yeah. I think when yeah. we say rest in peace, I mean, half of it's like, well, that's just the thing you say, so you say it. I think the other half of it is we, what is it? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. the people who most ardently say rest in peace are really hoping that they find some peace at some point. I don't know. Sure. Um, but yeah, she's not after peace for any. She says that she hopes that he can be at peace. It, he's he is what he is and nothing that we do on this plane is going to change what's happening on any plane that he might exist on should he actually exist on any other plane what she's hoping for is that she can come to peace or be at peace with it and of course you know then finding out oh by the way he would be really embarrassed by you right now he would be yeah. sad that you just threw away everything you ever worked for everything you did hey the reason that he died is because you left him to go do this thing and now you can't do that thing anymore I mean, yeah. so, yeah, so right. if if there was any shot at him having peace, let's say, let's say he was not at peace this whole time, uh, she certainly just wrecked it again. Uh, but really what she's looking for is peace for herself. 
And uh, it turns out probably that's not going to be found pulling a Liam Neeson. I got to say one other thing really quickly. (laughs) Right. How do we know that we are not going to end up with like 150 crystalline entities in about three years? Oh, I know. Because we don't know how this thing works. We just see pieces of it going all over the place. I could just see, you know, had it gone to season eight, season nine, Captain Log. Holy cow, do we have crystalline (laughs) energies all over the place? And they each speak a different language because they all grew up individually because they got blown to... Mm-hmm. The heavens, thirty acres, and now, yeah, we got we got trouble right here in. Uh, it's, just, it's crystals everywhere. It's like a gift shop in Sedona. <laughs> They're just everywhere. You can't stop yes. them. But these are not healing crystals. Sadly, these are destroying no. crystals and uh, <laughs> and make lousy, lousy sun catchers. Because uh, yes. did we mention destroying? <laughs> With Dr. Mar behind us, and the crystalline entity all over the place, it is time for us to figure out what we have learned, from Silicon Avatar. Ken, we've been talking for nearly an hour, and... Honestly, I've forgotten everything that we've said in the last hour. It's completely out of my mind. The only thing that I remember is you saying that you're a dork. <laughs> so, so I really want to come back to that. Really? I really want to explore. You don't remember why the part where I, I said you were a dork as well? Really? Don't remember that at Just all. Just remember don't me remember being a dork. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, why, why Ken, are you a dork? And if you want to phrase that into your answer for, you know, does this episode hold up or not, then great, you can do that. But really, why are you a dork? Uh, Because I believe it was just last week that I was saying we are seeing uh, Star Trek go from being sort of Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek to the people that will come after Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek. And yet here we have uh, 90, 75 percent maybe Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek. Here's this thing that we don't understand. It certainly seems like it must be evil. It must be our enemy. And so what we're going to do is try to talk to it and find out whether or not it is actually our enemy. Now, Mm -hmm. I think a complete Gene Roddenberry read would be, and in the end, the scientist comes around as well. Dr. Mark comes around as well. Um, That doesn't happen. And maybe that wouldn't be his read on it. Maybe he would say, oh, do you not see the tragedy? Okay, now do you not see the tragedy? Um, Two words, Janice Lester. Remind me. Turnabout intruder. Oh, okay. Wow. I've blocked that out of my mind. <laughs> I remember not it, liking that episode, that, and that's yeah. really all I remember at this point. Um, I, I don't think that is a totally indefensible episode, but I, I only throw it out there. I mean, it's mostly indefensible, but not totally <laughs> indefensible. Um, I, I only throw it out there because Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek and that you know, to whatever extent was his or wasn't his. Um, it also had people who went off the deep end who couldn't be brought back. That's true. Um, you know, so I, I think this has kind of elements of a lot of different Gene Roddenberry Star Trek in it. Yeah. But, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Just had to get that out. No, no Go problem ahead. at all. No problem at all. So if, you're, if, if you said I'm answering in here as well whether or not the episode holds up, I would say yes. I mean, the pacing is a little strange because we start off with this sort of you know, starts with adventure. Uh, let's sit in a cave for Act One. Okay, now let's go meet this other old character who's kind of weird and off. And oh, wait, we're ending with adventure or discovery or nope. Turns out adventure. 
but I mean, it brings up a lot of uh, questions. If you had asked me when we started recording this, if this episode was going to go past an hour, I would have said no. No, not when we started recording, I think I had a feeling. When, when I first watched it, I just said, no, mm-hmm. this is pretty cut and dry. But there actually, there, there, there's a tremendous amount here to sort of uh, dissect and discuss, I think. You mentioned liking the scene between Riker and Picard. We have said that it gets silly talking about what a great actor Picard is, or excuse me, Patrick Stewart is, but every now and then he'll give you something else. Mm-hmm. When Riker comes to him, there is pain in Picard. Having to explain it, having to say it, having to open his eyes to maybe this is your feelings and not, you know, your actual thinking part of your brain here. I, I felt like there was like a there was a there was an unstated and understated but incredible sadness in Picard that okay, I'm alone on this one, it turns out. Yeah. Because the guy who's yeah. always got my back is is here going, Yeah, I think you're wrong here. And so right. he's actually got to stand up he's gonna stand up to everybody at that point. And say, no, what we said was right for us to do yesterday is still right for us to do today. And I'm sorry that you can't see that, but it's what we're going to do. So go write your letter and let's move on. So, I mean, to me, yes, this episode holds up uh, very well. What about you, sir? Yeah, you know, I I remembered very little about this when we came back to it for the podcast. I I remember that there's a crystalline entity and it comes back. And that's about it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they remember exactly how it played out. Um, and it's interesting because when I this is my week to write the synopsis. And and when you and I do this every other week, I wonder if you have the same reaction that I do. Like there are some episodes where you just keep writing and writing and writing. And you go, wow, there is so much plot. Mm-hmm. Can we please just sort of narrow this down and get to the meat of it? Because really, that's all we want to talk about. And then there are other episodes like this one where it was pretty easy to write because there's not a lot of plot, but there's a lot going on. And the more interesting stuff is all that's going on that isn't just plot detail after plot detail after plot detail. Sort of like a Richard Linklater movie. Like you watch it and like the the plot is like, eh, maybe the plot's a little thin, whatever. But at the end of it, you're like, hey, actually a lot happened there. And, you know, I I got to experience these characters. So that's what's cool about it. I'm glad that this wasn't just a story about prejudice because I was jumping to that conclusion in the beginning. I thought, oh, okay, as soon as we introduce this character and she hates data, that's what the story will be about. But no, no, no. That was just a little slice of that character. Right. Um, and, and what we got instead was this complex and emotionally deep character in, in Dr. Marr. And I love the parallel to Devil in the Dark. Uh, it's this classic Star Trek story of understanding and being careful and exhausting every means to do what is right rather than what is convenient or what feels good, you know? Yeah. Um, they, they effectively built sympathy for a bad guy and like Devil in the Dark, they built sympathy for a character that was the farthest thing from human you could get. Mm-hmm. You can only do that in science fiction. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, it was interesting that the more research that I did, I found that there were a lot of people who are not thrilled with this episode. But I kind of think it depends on what you're looking for when you come to it. I, I think that unequivocally it holds up. It feels like Star Trek, mm-hmm. but it feels like Star Trek in that we get this story about understanding an alien. We also get this personal story of a woman who is going through a lot. 
Yeah. And they do such a good job of not just making her two dimensional and hateful, you know, because that would have been too easy to do. So um, I, I think there's a lot to like here. I, I think it, it definitely holds up and it is representative of, I think, what you and I really respond to when we talk about what's good about Star Trek. Doesn't mean it's the best episode, yeah. but this represents what is good about when we say good Star Trek. Can I ask a question, though? Would it hold up yeah. if you hadn't been watching all of TNG to this point? Because it's interesting to me, you said at mm-hmm. the beginning, nobody wanted to do a sequel. Yeah, I personally don't feel like this is a sequel. I feel like it is... I mean, it's it's a recurrent bad guy, but if we had never seen mm-hmm. it before, they could have just you know written another twenty seconds to say, oh yes, we've seen this before, you know, in some other place, even if we hadn't seen it. At the yeah. same time, what interests me about Riker is how much this says about Riker, a character that I feel like I know very well. What interests mm-hmm. me about you know, I guess the question I have is, does it hold up because of the way we're watching Star Trek and because of the way a lot of people watch it as it was being broadcast, or could you sit somebody because they do enough backstory. Mm-hmm. Could, could you send mm-hmm. somebody who has never seen Star Trek before? And I'm not saying this is the best episode to start them with, but if they'd never seen Star Trek before, would you expect them to take something away from it as well? I think generally it holds up on its own. Okay. I think the uh, there's better payoff if you already saw what happened before, mm-hmm. um, only because this is a show that has a good deal of technobabble in it and a good deal of reference in it. Yeah. So it's one thing to say Omicron Theta, but it's another thing to see in data lore. Oh, okay. Here are the drawings that the kids did. Here is the terror that they felt. Like you can kind of make that mental connection. Then, right. um, if I was just watching this and I'd only watched it one time, the name Omicron Theta might go in one year and out the other, and I might not make a, a mental note about what that was and what that meant in another episode. So it's definitely better with that other one. And I'll tell you this: one thing that I like about Star Trek, the further along that we go, and it's not just next gen, but a lot of other series and and you know now with movies sometimes i think they they sort of throw the net too wide and they will just keep introducing alien after alien after alien and you get just a a, a 2% understanding of who that is and why they're there mm-hmm. the crystalline entity was a big scary thing and then it left and then you were like, uh, okay, well, it still exists. It's still out there and can destroy anything. Right. That leaves a big question about what's happening in our little corner of the galaxy here. Yeah. So I, I like it when a story can at least create a little roundness and a, and a little bookend to something that is introduced that would otherwise, well, you know, we talked about this in the original series. Kirk goes around ripping civilizations out from under people mm-hmm. and then goes away. Yep. <laughs> you know, And you still have to wonder, wow, if you do this week after week, then the galaxy is just littered with possibly tragic stories. Yes. <laughs> you know? Indeed. So um, I, I like that it is a second part for for all of those reasons. Um, and I do think it holds up maybe a little bit better if you've seen the original. If you've, okay. Well, not the original, but seen its prequel. Right. Talk about messages, if you would. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a lot in there. Uh, some, well, probably pretty obvious. Um, you know, Dr. Marr, she, she learns a lesson at some point about doing something terrible, letting her prejudice lead her. When it comes to data, she she decides to see data exactly as she wants to, 
which is to say responsible for the colonist deaths at Omicron Theta, despite the fact that there is no evidence particularly for him. Although, Ken, you make a pretty interesting argument that the that, you know, exactly 50 percent of androids are evil yeah. <laughs> in, in Star Trek so far. Right. Um, but as far as Star Trek goes, you know, there's no bad time to remind us that we shouldn't assume the worst about people because of maybe their relationships to other people or their backgrounds or their work, et cetera, et cetera. Paint, paint with whatever brush you choose in that spot. But then she does something terrible and tragic again, which is to say that she invests data with her own needs. And, and there's not really a lesson there because I, I don't know if you can just talk somebody out of that. Hmm. Well, I would say one of the lessons there would be don't be consumed by grief. I mean, you actually have to, you have to do the work to get through it. Otherwise, you know, that ends up being the rest of your life. Right. Or don't be consumed by guilt. Maybe. I mean, it's such an easy thing to say, <laughs> but you mm -hmm. know, that's what Star Trek is, right? Hey, don't be vengeful. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> hey, right. don't be consumed by guilt or grief. See you next week. I mean, you know, but, I mean, that's what these parables are. I mean, even if they're not the easiest things in the world to do, at least they point us in the right direction. And no, we yeah. didn't get the big soliloquy at the end or the big monologue at the end about, oh, she was consumed by grief and it costs so much. I mean, I think it's inherent, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. wow, she never worked through the death of her son. So now she has screwed up everything in her life. So you say there's no message there, and you're right. There was no bonk, bonk on the head message. But I found myself thinking, wow, maybe if she'd spent some time in a counselor's office instead of learning everything about the thing that killed her son. You ever heard Jay Obar talk about writing The Crow? No, no. Uh, so Jay Obar uh, was the comic, uh, was, the, was the guy who wrote the story for The Crow. And The Crow was built on vengeance, both the, car uh, the comic book character and, and the whole project, because mm. Obar's uh, fiance was killed by a drunk driver. Mm. And it was, it was when the movie came out that people were interviewing him, and they were like, um, so that must have been really uh, cathartic for you to, to, do the, to do the comic. And he said, yeah, you know, you'd think so, but here's what happened. I ended up spending mm. years fixating on this event. I ended oh. up spending years fixating on what happened to her and revenge. So, yeah, I'm glad The Crow is successful, but you say it must have been a good thing for me. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm not sure. Wow. <laughs> so wow. this yeah. might actually be a message for, uh, for Dr. Mara as well. Like maybe eh, go to the beach, maybe you know, have a good cry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do, yeah, right. Do right. something besides feel bad about how you left your son and 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 what happened to him and because you know things only get worse after that yeah so there's, well, there's, I, there's a possible tie in there yeah i, I think so I, I think there's you know a lesson here about revenge and there's an interesting question at the heart of this which we talked about earlier which is you know a necessary course of action versus something that is influenced by revenge you know, the, that hint of vengeance in Riker's tone or in Dr. Mars' tone to say, well, no, we have to go kill it, um, rightfully gives Picard some pause to question the motivation. Mm -hmm. um, and as we learn in the end, you know, that phrase, peace at last, that Dr. Mars said, well, that peace does not come from taking vengeance. Marth thought it would. Mm -hmm. But not only does it not, the, the, the problem was not killing the, the thing, killing the crystalline entity, is that she had wrapped up her emotions completely inappropriately 
in in data and thinking that this action would solve this for her. Um, so the, there is no comfort to be taken by by acting in a vengeful manner. And I think that's a, a pretty Star Trek message as well. And then, of course, there's the other big Star Trek message. The thing that looks like the enemy might not be the enemy. It's just a thing that you don't maybe that you don't know enough about. We start to get a hint that they're going to be able to communicate with the crystalline entity. Of course, it gets destroyed before we know for certain. But it seemed mm-hmm. like it was going, as you pointed out, it seemed like it was going devil in the dark way. Uh, not so much like, you know, once they start talking to it, then it's going to be saying, ugly bags of mostly water. <laughs> get <laughs> right. ready to be flayed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so exactly. I mean, there's the implied Star Trek message, too, of your enemy is not necessarily your enemy. It may just be a... May just be a great big misunderstanding, a great big light catching crystalline misunderstanding. I, I think maybe did I hear it in a TV show once, or or maybe a movie, or maybe can I heard it in both a TV show and a movie? I believe there's a line that went something like, "There's no such thing as the unknown. There are only things that are temporarily hidden." Hmm. Maybe, maybe maybe that would apply there too. Maybe it would. Mm-hmm. Was that um, was that T.J. Hooker you heard that on? I think it was, yeah. I totally forgot, but I, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Might have been. Might have been. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment Executive Producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com, including the Roddenberry Store events. You can find out where the Roddenberry team will be appearing at conventions. So do check out Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, disaster. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. No actual crystals were harmed in the making of this episode. However, a large number of electrons were terribly inconvenienced. And transmission. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.